Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 17th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening. I'm Gloria Howell. We have with us Dr. Jeff Hauswald, Superintendent of Monroe County Community School Corporation. Nationally, the academic year has just started, and already there's great frustration with vaccinations and mandatory masking policies. And joining us to discuss not only that, but other things, uh, we have with us the Monroe County, Monroe County Community School Corporation Trustee Board Member, April Hennessy from District 2, and Aaron Cooperman, who joined the MCCSC Board of Trustees in April of 2021, after being selected by the Monroe County Circuit Court. Ms. Cooperman is a lecturer in the IU School of Public Health in Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bring It On. Thanks for having us. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, so you can't turn on the TV without all of the brouhaha um, debates, um, violent, vehement conversation. Some of it um, credible, some of it just more political spinning over the opening of this academic school year. Now, all these months of preparation, we knew that this time would come. And, but we're also seeing that uh, COVID-19 in another variant form, the Delta variant is making its way through our country and is, uh, is devastating people because it is more virulent than its uh, predecessor, uh, the original strain of COVID-19 that, that just went through our country last year. So now we're left with school systems, uh, superintendents under fire. We have governors issuing these crazy uh, mandates against mask wearing. We have a former president who is sort of directing individuals to make statements. And we have our current president who's trying to keep the calm and try to appeal to rational thinking people all of that and little Johnny and little Janie have to go to school. So uh, Dr. Hallswad, uh, as the ranking member on this phone call, <laughs> all, all these issues we're gonna lay at your feet and we know that you have a resolution and we wanna hear it tonight. Can you first help us make sense of all that's going on? Well, I can give my two cents. Uh, first of all, I'm not sure I'm the ranking member. So I, uh, I don't know if you're trying to, uh, that, that is a, uh, um, just to let the record reflect, I did not provide that bio or that part of my bio uh, for this radio program. I don't know if you're trying to get me in trouble or to get me fired. I mean, you started by saying superintendents are under fired. And so I just uh, under fire. So I hope you're not trying to get me fired. But well, uh, well, board members Tennessee and Superman are very gracious in, in, in smiling at that comment. So Well, well some superintendents... Uh are being threatened with no pay, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe it's a good thing I'm not a, a superintendent in Florida. Although when I walked outside today with my suit on it, it, it felt like I was in Florida with the humidity and the, and the heat. So, uh, which I think that that doesn't, that doesn't help, uh, you know, the, the communal effects of, of, of heat, uh, especially in areas with a lot of blacktop uh, 
in urban settings can, can probably raise, raise blood pressures more than they already are. So, um, but back, back to your question. Um, thank you, for, first of all, for having us on your radio program. It is a phenomenal a program and a service that you do for the community, um, for the constituents, for your targeted audience. I know you're one of the first people to reach out to me and say, we want to get to know you. We want to get to know more about MCCSC. And so I know this is the second opportunity I've had to be on your radio program and uh, what a service you provide. So um, I know that you have a lot of topics and I've been reminded um, that I don't get to talk every week. So um, the frequency with which you have allowed us to talk about events in K-12 public education, I just want you to know that, that we really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, um, again, you know, making sense out of all that's going on, it, it, it does seem as of this date, it's August the 12th, it's been the main talking point leading uh, most of the uh, evening news shows or even morning news shows. Yeah, uh, right. there, there is great confusion because we have a lot of mixed messaging, I would think. And, and April, what do you think about all this? Well, you caught me on a day of existential despair. So <laughs> <laughs> how I feel about it today is, uh, <laughs> is, wow. I mean, it's just, you know, it's hard. I think it's hard if you're a parent, it's hard if you're not a parent, it's hard if you're a teacher, it's hard if you're a board member. It really is just hard for all of us right now. It's just really, really difficult. And everybody seems to have a different idea of what the right thing to do is, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's just one of those things that has sort of fueled some of the divides that we've already seen. Um, mm -hmm growing in our, in our country over the past four, four or five years, however long it's been that we've kind of seen the gap growing wider and wider and wider. And um, so it's a sensitive point for a lot of people. And yet, you know, we're all living in the same, same pandemic, however you feel about it. So we're all in the same pandemic, you know? Well, and I don't have an answer. Um, Ms. Cooperman, do you have an answer? Oh, I, I, I wouldn't claim to have the answers, um, but, but like Dr. Hoswald said, I can give my two cents. Um, you know, I've been, I know April said she is feeling like she's in a state of existential dread today. And I would say that I, I waver back and forth, but as I was watching the news today and trying to kind of look on the bright side of things, um, I would, cause I, you know, I'm in public health. So I watch the numbers and I watch what's happening around the country. And, uh, I think that a lot of school districts started from a place of leniency and now they're having to strengthen their public health protocols to keep their students and staff safe. And I was just saying to Dr. Halswald today, one of the things I'm proud of in our situation is that I, I think we sort of, or I'll speak for myself, what I wanted us to do and what I think we did was um, we started from a place of strength and figured that if things got worse, as it seems like they might, um, we we'd have the, the best precautions in place to begin with. And if things get better, then we can back off of those and, and loosen them. And so I think as what we're seeing in the country is that we probably made the right call and that makes me optimistic. It, I have a lot, of, um, a lot of trust in our team and in the approach that we've taken. And so 
if I, you know, if I'm, if I just look locally, uh, then, then I, I feel like there's a safety net in place for us. And that, that makes me optimistic when I'm feeling that sort of sense of dread that like April said. And, and Clarence, if I may have an opportunity to answer your question, because you may notice I spent my first part of my, uh, my opportunity to speak, uh, thanking you and thanking you for this conversation. Um, so maybe it's good that I get to go last so that I can basically agree um, with, with, with April and Aaron. Um, and, and they've been very clear, and I believe the board is in its entirety has been very clear that we want to do our best to follow science, follow recommendations from organizations like the CDC. Um, and we understand that history will judge whether or not we made the right decision. Um, we just have to make the most informed decision we can right now. Um, when we look back in 20 years, we'll, we'll understand better uh, the, the, this juxtaposition between the difficult decisions we're making related to um, personal health as it relates to st stopping the spread and, 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 and mitigating a potential, um, potential spread of, of COVID-19, um, the academic needs of our students, social emotional impacts of what we've decided. Um, history will, will, will paint a clearer picture. But I'm very comfortable and confident that the, that the leadership of NCCSE under the guidance of the Board of School Trustees has made the most informed decision possible. I mean, really carefully deliberating and balancing what we know to be true or what we assume to be true um, related to COVID-19 and the potential spread of COVID-19 um, and the short-term and, and, and long-term effects of that, along with what we know is true as educators in terms of, of how students best learn, um, how we best serve our priority populations, including our, our students of poverty, our students of color, um, and to make sure that um, we are accelerating learning for all and that we don't see an achievement gap widening. So all of these things is why I really believe that we are focused on the science, right, and developing uh, data systems to make sure we're monitoring the realities related to COVID-19 uh, positivity rates, or more importantly now, cases, right? How, uh, student absences, you may have heard that recently, a neighboring school district was talking about the percent of students that were out of their building. So we're monitoring that data but then there's also this artful side. There's this artful side of trying to compare that with what is needed for students to learn and the realization that it was one thing to have learning loss for two months from, from March 20th to May 20th, thereabouts in 2020. And there's another thing to have additional loss um, for the 2021 school year. So now we're starting the 21-22 school year. And I think these conversations get more difficult. They get more tense. A lot of um, family members are going back to work. Um, we we have we want to make sure that our that the children in our community, the students that we serve, um, that there's not concerns with with neglect, with with situations where um, you know our, our students need health, they need meals, they, they they need a place during the day if their parents or family members or guardians are working. So all of these conversations are coming together to try to make the most informed decision. And, and back to the original question, I do believe that the, the changes and, and the allowances made through the reentry plan that was approved on July 27th does that. Because basically the conversation we had was we know, and this also is information that's come out from the CDC as well as uh, national educators, that we know our students learn best in person and we know that we need to do everything we can to provide that opportunity to our students. So from there, we said, if we know what the CDC guidelines are, for example, right? And we know that mask requirements can help curb the spread, right? We, we knew that we had to have that in place. And um, we were confident in that decision and helped that the CDC made that guidance about six hours before a formal decision. So, um, so we knew that, right? 
But then we also looked at other things within the day that we could do to help improve um, the learning for our students. So for example, um, we, we know that with the three foot guidance compared to six foot guidance, particularly for students who are masked, and again, uh, Aaron and April hop in here if I misspeak, the three foot guidance, right? Um, allowed our students to learn in, in back in their classroom environments, which opened up some space for our students so they could experience visual arts and, and, and fine arts, um, um, their, the libraries, and have some movement during the day in a safe way. Also, and equally importantly, it allowed us to open our cafeterias back up. And I think there was some misinformation, and, and we really tried to, to communicate that, that that did not mean that we were packing everyone in to our cafeterias. It was just an additional dining space where we could still follow the six-foot guidelines um, and actually have our students spread out more this year in, when they're eating than in many cases they did last year when they had to eat at their desks and perhaps those desks were closer together. So I, I really do think that um, we are doing everything we can to stop the spread, to keep our schools open, and to try to create some additional learning opportunities for our students this year that they may have missed last year. Um, our students, I, I, I visited with about 400 um, students last spring um, as part of an introductory uh, tour of the different schools. And many of them asked for these types of things. They, they asked for, um, you know, of course, the elementary students talked about recess, but they talked about going back to the library to, to be able to, to see the books and choose a book that they want to take home. They talked about missing going to their art room or their music room um, and, and similar conversations with secondary students. So um, I do think we've increased some permissions, but I think we've done it very deliberately. Um, and, and back to board member Cooperman's comments, it's a lot easier to implement these allowances slowly than it is to put them all in and then start taking them away. Um, you know, in reviewing these protocols, I, I do believe we're about as strict as we can be without starting to take away some learning experiences for students. So I do think that it doesn't mean we're not having those conversations and there is the potentiality for further restrictions. But by being as strict as we can be and allowing our students to have these opportunities, we do believe that we're going to slow the spread. We hope that we have fewer cases than in areas where there's a lot greater um, leniency where it's you know, mask optional for everyone. Um, and hopefully that if there comes a time um, where we have to tighten those things, it will happen later. Um, and I think there's less likelihood that it will happen. So um, all of those, those conversations are taking place. And um, we are excited to see right now as we've opened the year um, that we do have some additional allowances, um, but most importantly, that 99% of our students are in person this year. Um, that's significantly more than last year where it was around 70%. And we do know those numbers changed last year from the beginning to the middle of the year to, to the third quarter. Um, so 99% of our students are in person um, and we're making those accommodations. As, as you know, we, we've added 2,700 riders to our buses this year compared to last year. That's another conversation for another day. But there's a lot of additional um, uh, changes and adjustments that are being made um, because of the change in demand from virtual to in-person. So again, we want to encourage our families to be in person. So we're making accommodations to try to stop the spread and to keep our students safe um, in the learning environment, giving this new, this new data and the reality that most of our students want to be in the schools. And most of our families have told us that as well. They, they, well, they either I, want their students in person or they need their students to be learning in person. And I think to that point, I mean, I, I think it's really important for people to understand, right, that masking enables us to stay in person longer because we're already seeing other areas around us having disrupted learning because they were mask optional, right? And so, you know, 
despite the fact that there's been a lot of backlash, I think the point is we, we put this policy or these protocols in place because we wanted to ensure that our, our students could have in-person learning as long as possible. And we just know that if you make it mask optional, looking at the numbers of the Delta variant has, you know, I don't know what it is, like a thousand times more vi viral load. Aaron, do you remember like what the number is? But I mean, the viral load is, it's eight times, right? 10, 10 times? And yeah. Yeah, I thought it was eight actually. I was just being hyperbolic, but um, so apparently 10, not eight, not a thousand, um, but you know, but the viral load is significant, right? And, and so what we know is that it's not necessarily killing more people per se, but it is more contagious, right? It's, it's more highly contagious. So um, having mask optional, especially in elementary schools where kids haven't yet have the had the option to be vaccinated um, is just sort of tempting fate, right? Um, and how long do you get to stay in school then at that point? hopefully this way with masks on, even though it's not ideal, nobody wants to do it. Um, we get a little bit of sort of longer times to be in school without those kinds of disruptions. Maybe we make it the whole year, let's hope. If I can, if I can jump in, um, just let our listening audience know the voice you, you just heard is April Hennessy, who is a MCCSC trustee board member. And also uh, the gentleman you heard prior to uh, Ms. Hennessy was, of course, Dr. Jeff Oswald, who is the, um, the newly installed superintendent of Monroe County Community School Corporation. Uh, after this year, we can drop the newly installed part, but uh, for right now, this is his first academic start of, the, uh, of his tenure here in Monroe County. And so we you're were telling speaking. me I get, you're going to call me rookie for the first year. Is that correct, Clarence? Absolutely. No. <laughs> if your listeners well, couldn't tell the difference apart between me and April speaking, my answer was about 12 minutes. <laughs> about I, I wasn't going to comment on that, but uh, I will a little <laughs> later. Um, and, and he is confronted, like other superintendents are nationally, uh, with a sort of burgeoning uh, crisis on our hands with uh, the Delta variant of the COVID-19 uh, virus uh, that is sweeping through some states. And uh, I don't necessarily want to get into um, the designation of these states politically, but uh, there are some trends that we could definitely talk about at length. But before we get into that, we, we did hear comments uh, again from Ms. Hennessy, but now uh, before uh, Ms. Cooperman comments, we want to hear from our, from our host, co-host, um, Gloria Howe. Gloria, do you want to weigh in on this? Sure. I I have a, a thought, and as as um, April and Jeff were speaking, and, and Aaron as well, and I'm thinking about who we have on the broadcast. We have a, a superintendent, we have a school board member, and then we have um, a trustee board member. I feel like um, Aaron has all the all the titles and it probably does a whole bunch. Um, and she also <laughs> lectures in the School of Public Health. So um, it just makes me think about, and, and I work in higher ed at, at Indiana University. So, um, you know, where collaboration is the name of the game. And, and if you don't work with other units, you know, across campus, you're not gonna be successful. So um, I'm wondering, even just having the three of you on the call, if you could take us back to March, April, um, hopefully that's that's not a too terrible of a, of a place to think to think back to. But I know even in in my work, preparing for August has been something that's 
daunting and exciting at the same time, right? So um, can you talk a little bit about, like take us back to that time and as you were preparing for August and having to work with all of these different people, I mean, you've got public health professionals, um, a lot of stakeholders that Jeff opened the conversation with, right? Parents, teachers, the children themselves that we can't forget, right? Because that's that the, the most important people in this. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the how you came up with this strategy and approach and just what it's been like, maybe some of the bumps in the road. And of course there's obvious bumps in the road that we know, but just from your from where you sit, um, you know, as board members, as public health professionals and working together to just prepare for this school year. If you could just touch on like a couple of just big picture or big ticket items um, for our listeners to know kind of what that strategy um, looked like back then um, as we have started the, the school year. So I'm gonna take this first um, for reasons that Jeff and Aaron are both nodding their head and then I'm gonna hand it off to them. So actually we are in major transition, right? Because Dr. Hoswald wasn't even appointed yet. Um, he didn't start until July 1st. And then Aaron Cooperman um, was appointed in April. Is that right? Right, mid-April. So, um, you know, in March, we were still trying to kind of keep it together until the end of the school year, hoping to keep kids in school as long as possible, um, just looking at the home stretch. And we knew, and I think at that point, we could kind of see the summer coming and everyone was sort of like feeling that there was relief in sight in the sense that, you know, teachers were exhausted, parents and kids were exhausted, but also the thought of like, summertime and how that would look with COVID and the way that, that might change those, um, those kinds of things, right? More outdoor time. Um, I think a lot of people sort of started to look toward the summer as, you know, perhaps bringing change. And then once we hit kind of June, July with the superintendent transition, we started to really think about what the next year was going to look like. But you know, the fact of the matter is like the data changes every day, the status of these variants change every day. And so even if we'd had plans back in April or May or whatever, we probably would have had to scrap them and kind of redo it anyway. You know, we were doing that up until the minute before almost like the board meeting because of the CDC changes and things like that. So um, yeah, go ahead. I, I think um, board member Cooper would get insight into how rapidly changing some of these realities are. Um, I would just reiterate real quickly before she does that, um, you know, it's good to compare this with other school situations. So let's talk about school delays and cancellations for inclement weather. People love to talk about it. And we have a couple options. Uh, we can try to make a guess, you know, at five o'clock the day before based on the projection and prediction of snow, or we can wait till the following morning and we can get a better idea of what the realities are and how safe it is. And so that can be frustrating to families, but we have a lot more information in the morning than we do the night before. And so if you think about that, um, in this case, a lot of people would like us to make decisions in, in, in May or June, but if we did, we, we would have been like a lot of school districts and probably had made changes multiple times before the school year even began. So there may have been, and it may have just been fortuitous dumb luck on our part because of the transition to leadership. But I do believe that by us, making the decision more closely to the start of school, I do think to April's point, 
um, and we were able to open school with, with making that one change and then we have stuck with it so far. So I think that um, there, there is some um, strategy and importance there in deciding um, that the longer we wait, the more accurate the data is. So I'll, I'll, I'll kind of um, punt that off to board member Cooperman, but I did want to reiterate what April said in terms of deciding more closely to start a school is probably beneficial. Yeah, I think um, it, this is Aaron Cooperman, and uh, I, I appreciate that Gloria said I have all the titles. That's what I'm going to tell my students in the fall. I have all the titles. Um, <laughs> Uh, but um, it's been interesting coming in at this point in the process, as April mentioned, um, in March, I was mostly just the parent of a kindergartner trying to figure it all out along with everybody else. Um, but what I've noticed already having stepped in at this point, like everybody said, you can't really plan for the future with this virus or probably with any virus because things are going to change all the time. But what I think our district has done well is that we put processes in place so that we can move nimbly as the things change. So we have a panel of experts that we consult with regularly. I know that Dr. Hoswald meets regularly with various experts in the community so that we can, you know, so that we can, um, we can make those decisions as we need to um, on an ongoing basis. So, so we have that that structure in place, and I think that's that's one of our strength and strengths. And um, I I've been sort of waiting for an opportunity to talk about this this whole child model that I know we all focus on in, on our board, and Dr. Hoswald does too. And you know, the whole child means that we're taking into consideration social emotional health, um, financial health, all the different aspects, not just disease prevention, um, that's sort of the public health model. But I think we've sort of layered on top of that, that we take into consideration all of the feelings of our different stakeholders, our teachers and our bus drivers and our students. And um, that sometimes that also sometimes slows down the decision making, but I still think it's the right thing to do. And, and sometimes sometimes Dr. Hoswald has to make a call based on the data on the day, but, but because we have those structures in place, um, we, can, we can, to the extent possible, take in the, the, what's best for every aspect of our students' health, as well as the interests of all of our stakeholders. And, and that's really, that's the best we can do in terms of planning ahead, I think. Thank you. Thank you for, for those responses. Um, I really, that's very interesting. The whole child model that, okay. Um, I, I can't take credit for that. That's the CDC, but. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you CDC um, yeah. for that and, and a number of other things. Um, thank you. So speaking of the, of the whole, whole child model and going back to something that um, I believe Dr. Halswald mentioned as well earlier was, um, and you just said as well, Aaron, thinking about the, the holistic student, right? Um, and recognizing that you do have what some may consider uh, more vulnerable populations, or you might have, you know, students who are, um, who the, the pandemic only just intensifies their current situations prior to the pandemic, right? So, um, so things are, are a little challenging, um, more challenging to, to deal with. So can you talk about um, maybe some specific uh, programs or I was looking at your website and there's so many 
it's just literally everything um, that one could could need. There's protocols, there's, you know, all these different things. So um, can you talk a little bit about some specific programs, um, you know, that that you may have kind of tweaked a little bit or, you know, have kind of foregrounded um, that you're seeing parents and students take advantage of during this time? Sure, if you would like me to take that first, I'll be glad to. This is uh, Dr. Oswald, superintendent. It's a very good question, Gloria, very insightful. So thank you for asking that. So um, I'll, I'll go back to the whole child com um, comment that, that board member Cooperman made, and then we'll look at how that relates to, to your question, or at least as I see it. So when we, when we talk about the whole child, we of course talk about academic. We also talk about behavioral. We talk about social, emotional. That also includes the, the, the the, the health and overall well-being of a student. And so if you, you know, the decision that we had to make, um, including I'm sure the MCCSC Board of School Trustees um, in, in March, 2020, was, was a, a decision to close at the time for, you know, two weeks, four weeks, something like that, right? And so we had immediate concern for the health and we knew that there would be some short-term, um, perhaps learning loss from some additional time off, right? But then each month that we, that uh, longer in which we had um, virtual learning or, or no learning, right, particularly for our priority populations, we began to, to weigh a little differently um, how we keep our students safe, but how we do so in an environment in which they can return to school. That's kind of that whole child conversation. Now, you're kind of hinting at what are we doing differently this year, which is a great question. First of all, we, we provided some jumpstart opportunities um, to try to reduce some of the traditional summer learning loss that existed. We did that in a lot of our, um, our Title I or elementary schools. We opened those up so that students could to come to school a little bit earlier um, to have some individualized uh, um, instruction and really some opportunities to help prepare them for learning. So in, in, in educational theory, something we talk about is being ready to learn. That's really, really important. So for a kindergartner or a kindergarten classroom, the more students that are ready to learn, now we, we, we may talk a little bit about foundational knowledge, right? But it's really just the skill sets needed to learn, not what you have learned. So we have to get our students ready to learn. So we are working with teachers beyond just primary grades to make sure that we talk about what that means this year, because being ready to learn this year may be different than what teachers have experienced in the past, um, partially because our students have experienced learning loss or have had reductions in learning opportunities because of perhaps virtual experiences. Maybe, um, maybe they have been um, sick or ill, right? Or and, and missed uh, specific learning opportunities or days. So students have had additional barriers to learning. So we really are working with our staff to try to identify those and provide individualized support. Our teachers have always known how to differentiate instruction. That is to identify where a student is and make sure that we accelerate learning for that student with the ultimate goal of making sure every student grows at least one year each year of school. Right. So it's a little bit more challenging this year because when we get our students back to school, not only are the teachers diagnosing the academic standards and where the students are on that continuum of learning for, for important skills um, in, in communication, literacy, numeracy, problem solving, and, and many others. So in addition to that, they have to make sure they're aware of barriers that may exist, perhaps because of COVID, right? So these are traumatic events that may have happened where a student has a, a loved one or a neighbor that, 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 that they lost or that is sick. Um, perhaps um, they have a, a, a family member that has lost their job. So maybe they're, um, 
more economically uh, insecure, if you will. Perhaps they are hungry and maybe they haven't experienced that before because of not having an access. Maybe they're living in a food desert, but in, in the past they had greater opportunities than they did this year. So now our teachers have to not only um, assess where the students are academically and begin a plan to close that achievement gap, but they have to be aware of some of these other social emotional cues, right? And these behavioral cues and, and create individualized plans with tiered support. That tiered support means that the first tier is what they do within the classroom to make adjustments. And our teachers are masterful at that. But then beyond that, we have supplemental support. We have social workers, we have mental health um, uh, uh, workers. We also have paraprofessionals. Um, we have uh, other teachers that are, that are facilitators and coaches that can provide those tier two and tier three supports necessary. So it really is an art and a science. Um, and it's, it's made our teachers' jobs much more complex this year because of the additional barriers and because of the time by which the students did not experience the same type of learning last year, right? 30% were online. Um, as we talked about, we had a significant number of students that um, either were homeschooled or in which we are unaware of what their learning circumstances were last year. So we have uh, additional students enrolled in our district this year, approximately 150. We have an additional 30% of those students, so around... Um, 3,000 that, that are transitioning from um, virtual remote learning to in-person. So the entire environment is different and our teachers are having to make that work. And that is why I would say right here and now that the work of our teachers this year is probably a lot more challenging than being a board member or superintendent. I'd like to uh, jump in and say the voice you just heard uh, elaborating on uh, several current conditions in the Monroe County Community School Corporation was Dr. Jeff Oswald, who is at the helm, the superintendent of MCCSC. Also on the call with us uh, for this interview, we do have Aaron Cooperman, who joined the MCCSC Board of Trustees in April of 2021. She was selected by the Monroe County Circuit Court, and she's also a lecturer in the IU School of Public Health. And then, of course, our dear friend, April Hennessy, who is the um, trustee board member, MCCSC trustee board member for District 2. And I want to go back to something I heard earlier in the, in the earlier part of this conversation, that in fact, there is this neighboring school system that is reporting high numbers of students who are not attending. And if, if I were, I guess, to assume that these are students that are contracting the virus, um, that's a big concern, not that it's at epidemic levels or whatever, but there's a upward trend that is beginning to cause great uh, concern. And we also know that there are states with low vaccination rates, which <clears throat> ultimately is gonna play itself out in the public square, if you will, and the school is, is not immune to that. We talked about some of the marginalized communities that tend to trend up with COVID cases because of lack of access to healthcare and barriers to, to say, get educated about how to best take care of themselves. Uh, being proactive, and, and, I, and I sort of, I, I get the analogy of making the call, and that is a tremendous call to make for a closing of a school due to, to inclement weather. Uh, I, I wish I had that number when I was earlier so I could call imitate my principal and make the call, but uh, they knew not to give me that number. Um, but that proactive, stance or, or that analogy, I, I understand. 
say, waiting that morning to see what really is the radar actually saying? What are the predictions that are coming down and, and what is more likely to occur now? But when it comes to COVID and the transmission, sometimes not even manifesting until days later, you have to then take larger trend levels. And I'm sure our, our colleague from the School of Public Health would agree that this it's, it's no one has, has perfected this, but I tell you the window for error is so small because now this particular variant can just decimate younger kids. And my concern is, okay, I have, you know, just my situation, I have an eight-year-old that can't take the, get the vaccine. So she will be wearing a mask. And we had conversation with uh, the administration and I respect their position that they're in, but my child will be wearing a mask. My 12-year-old has been vaccinated, but guess what? She will be wearing a mask also. And so, I mean, these are situations that, welcome to Monroe County Community School Corporation, unlike any other, no, not unlike, like other community school corporations, this is a new day and we are probably in the midst of a new normal. So how do we navigate circumspectly through this whole morass? And I wanna start with uh, Dr. Halswald and I wanna go back then to April and then to Aaron. So I'll go ahead and, and let you, uh, you, you good people respond. That's a great question and probably said, you asked it much more articulately than I will answer it. So um, you're exactly right. We, we do have to look at trend data and we have to work with as many different agencies and professionals as we can. So we talked a little bit about a, a, a team of people that look um, and that we bring, that are brought to us some of the, the, the medical sciences, if you will, to understand the virus and what they're learning about the virus and how it spreads. And I think board member Cooperman kind of hinted at that. So, um, and, I, and, I, and I've worked with Superintendent Tracy over in Brown County um, for many years. She's also from Northern Indiana, and I know she's going to do a great job in her new role over there at Brown County Community Schools. Um, but, but there are statutory components that we do look at and review um, our attendance rates. We do that on a daily basis at both the school level and the district level. So in a case where there's significant spread, um, which results in significant absences, um, and, and I want to be clear that those absences are can be a combination of things. Perhaps it's positive cases, but also students that are having to stay home for quarantine purposes. I mean, there could be absences for other reasons. Um, um, you know, I can't speak to the specifics, specifics, but what we do is we watch those numbers at a building level and, a, and at a district level. And I know that when they hit 20% by, under, under state law, then we have to um, uh, have conversations with the, with the um, Indiana Department of Education, the state, um, um, with the Indiana State Health Department, but also then we are required to close. Um, but back to your point, and I know that we have a group that meets regularly within our district, and these are conversations they're having. They're meeting again next week. Uh, Board Member Cooperman can elaborate on this, but the, the metrics are changing because we know more. Um, and we also know what we're considering those metrics within the, the goal of having our students have in-person learning. Um, and so I, I, I think that we are seeing, I mean, we, we know that we're going to see more spread in areas where there's less precautions that are, are taken. So in our case, we've maximized the precautions, but it's very important that we continue to review this information on a regular basis and look at trend data. Your, your point is very well made. We don't have to wait to get to 20. What we have to do is be watching and when those, just like when you when you read the, 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 the 14 day uh, trend data, the 14 day absence rates, and you look at these things and you see it trending up, um, the more proactive we can be, perhaps the, the, the more quickly 
um, we can we can reduce the spread and, and hopefully keep students um, some students from catching COVID um, if we are watching um, and, and monitoring and noticing when these trend data is arising. Um, Board Member Cooperton, Cooperman, you can probably elaborate on that um, more artfully than I am right now. Oh, no, not at all. But I also, I think that Clarence wanted to give April a chance before me to, okay, <clears throat> okay, I'm happy to jump in. No, no, that's okay. <laughs> I'm glad you started. Uh, I want to start by saying, you know, I also have kids under 12, so I, I feel your pain on that. Um, and I have immunocompromised family members, and I think on a personal level, my heart goes out to everybody who is in that position who has to make those hard decisions. And, and I was also thinking when we were talking before about what a double-edged sword it is for uh, communities of color, because we know that those vulnerable populations that Gloria mentioned, they are harmed the most by being out of school, but they're also harmed the most by the virus, by the epidemic, by the pandemic. Um, I, I, it goes from virus to epidemic to pandemic. Now, you know, they're harmed most by the pandemic. So, um, I also kind of want to give a pitch for getting vaccinated. I think Clarence, you mentioned that um, that there are quote unquote these states that have low vaccination numbers. We're one of those states, right? We're one of those counties, and really the best thing the community can do to keep our kids in school is to get vaccinated. And so that's always been part of our plan too, is to really try to incentivize as many people as possible to get vaccinated. That will keep our kids in school and keep the virus from spreading in our community. But we do have the, this metrics committee. And while um, it is, it's, I think we are all on the same page that it's always gonna be our goal to keep kids in school. That doesn't mean that we will hesitate to make the tough call if we have to. And um, we work very closely with the health department. Um, uh, I've known Penny Cottle for, for, Penny Cottle for years. Um, and, and we rely on her expertise. We also have physicians and other experts, as well as parents and school administrators in that committee. And as Jeff mentioned, we're going to meet on the 18th to talk about what what are our sort of guideposts. When are we going to start to start to decide whether we need? You know, I we always talk about whether we're going to close schools, but frankly, there are smaller changes we can make before we even get to that point. And I think those are the conversations that we're going to have with that committee on the 18th is when do we start sort of making stricter rules within the schools? And when, if unfortunately, if we do have to get to the point where we move to an online system, what when would we make that call? I don't have those numbers yet, but I can tell you that there's a group that's going to be making those decisions soon. Then April? Yeah, I mean, I don't really have a lot to add to that. That was a really, um, I think, comprehensive response. I'll just say that you know, Clarence, like you, I have two kids that are vaccinated and one that isn't just because he's not old enough yet. And we already have that discussion as a family that everybody in the household was going to remain masked um, until everyone was vaccinated. And then probably even after that, because what, what we've seen is that it actually is masking is great at reducing the spread of other things like colds and flus and things like that through, through the season. And so, you know, it's, it's proven to be effective for prevention in that way. Um, and so we are big proponents of masking at this point, like Aaron, we're obviously, you know, big proponents of being vaccinated um, and of people getting the right information, right? I think a lot of people just, they might be getting misinformation or disinformation, not quite knowing um, what the sort of like risk, um, 
benefit balance is necessarily. So, you know, I think, I think we are going to keep looking at the science. We'll keep looking at the data. We're not going to put that stuff down just because, um, you know, we're through last year, obviously we're not done with this virus or it's not done with us at this point. Um, and it's still, I think, I think the thing that people forget is that this is still a novel virus. And when we say novel virus, we mean new. It is something that hasn't been introduced to our bodies and immune systems in this way. And so our bodies are learning and we have vaccines that are helping us um, how to fight this thing, right? And, and so when people are like, well, the flu does this or this does that, that's a bad correlation because those are things that our bodies have been exposed to for a long time now. And this again is a new virus, a novel virus. So we are learning about it as it is learning about us. And it's kind of just a race, right? To see um, if we can keep up with the virus's constant mutations. So until then, you know, we're just gonna stay the course for now until we have the data and the science that say we can, we can change or shift or whatever we need to do, I think. So. That's very well said, April. And if I may, Board Member Hennessy, if I may, um, I, I, we also, in, 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 a, in a separate conversation I had with Board Member Cooper, what I heard her say um, was that we, we also want to be glass half full. And so when we meet as a group, we also want to look at the more optimistic um, metrics that say at this point, we are comfortable allowing, for example, our teachers, our, our primary school teachers that need to teach phonemic awareness to lower their masks, right? In other words, we, we're, we're, kind of, we're not only talking about tightening, we're also having conversations and, and reviewing the data so that maybe we can um, introduce some additional liberties going forward. I mean, at some point that conversation will happen. So I know we, 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 it, it's, we're, we're worried about the need to tighten down, but we're also excited about making sure that we're watching the data and, and we're really even more excited about the opportunity to add some additional um, flexibility in there. And if I may, something that, the, that was mentioned that we really want to point out was the importance of vaccinations. And at the very beginning of, of, of the introduction of this, of this um, show, we talked about mandatory policies and masking and those things. We also talked about vaccination. And I think um, it should be noted that MCCSC is doing everything they can to encourage vaccination. We're putting that in our messaging. Right, we're putting that in, in, in communication material. Um, we're really excited and pleased that we were able to offer a $1,000 stipend to all benefited employees um, who present documentation of vaccination. I think that's significant. And we have had employees, I've had employees specifically tell me that they were on the fence, but they are going to get it and that the incentive made a difference. Now we won't know till later how much of a difference it made, but if nothing else, I think it communicates our commitment and our desire to encourage people who can get a vaccine to do so. And so um, we're also talking about ways to encourage our students to do it. I know we're, de we're developing some strategies related to that, um, but nonetheless, we, we, we don't wanna end this, this, this important conversation on, on your show without talking about what we're doing to advocate for vaccines, um, because we know um, it is significant and in, in, in basically, helping to stop uh, the spread, or at least to, to reduce the number of, of, of hospitalizations associated with it. Uh, before uh, Gloria, uh, I wanted to follow up on something you said quickly, or just briefly about messaging. Um, that to me has been the most 
frustrating, one of the most frustrating things about this whole journey we're all on uh, is that we're getting so many mixed messages. For whatever reason, it's making the decision of parents that much more difficult. Um, and, you know, as far as making the decision to get the vaccine or making the decision to support a mandate of mask wearing. Uh, and then I, and then I look again, I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, superintendents and I don't have no reason to think uh, Dr. Hosball that you will have to confront this, but there are superintendents that are being threatened with, um, just, you know, not being paid because of the stance they're being forced to make. And there's some people about to make the ultimate in, in, in drawing the line in the sand for the safety of children. And, and that whole situation that I've seen in, in some states like Texas and Florida and others that are now emerging as uh, sort of um, uh, epicenters um, is that there is this politicization of this virus that, that is so just, um, it's a slap in everyone's face, you know, and, and that's the thing that from day two, or really even before it was announced that we had this problem, it was politicized because we found out later that certain individuals didn't know that this thing was coming. So now here we are. And I, I just don't want to repeat all the foolishness of last year the second guessing or uh, just the misdirecting concerning what needs to take place. And I'm glad that there is a panel of experts. I'm glad that uh, they're weekly, uh, routinely meeting. I'm glad that we have a proactive uh, set of board members that will uh, speak truth to those who both administrate and those in power. Um, and, and I just really hope that say communications even with the governor of Indiana because we are a state that has low vaccination rates. And I hope someone's impressing upon him the need to get ahead of this and really stress uh, that they need to get vaccinated. And you know, I mean, why, are we, why should we ever have to use money as an incentive for people to do the right thing when it comes to their health and getting vaccinated, especially in a pandemic situation? So I know it's a little long-winded. There may not even be a question in there, but it's just been what's been weighing on my mind. And since I have this wonderful platform, I'll bring it on on occasion. I'll spot out uh, these type of things. So, uh, Miss Howell, I, I took some of your time. I yielded back. I think uh, we're down to, oh, maybe around 12 minutes or so. So I'll go ahead and, and uh, yield to you. Yeah, no problem. I, I appreciate you sharing that, Clarence, and, and um, liked listening to um, April and Aaron in particular talk about like how you the conversations that you have with your children um, and just you know how I'm I just I don't have any children but I work with students that you know sometimes I treat them like they would be my children um, but I, I think it's 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 interesting I'm sure for you to sit where you sit and watch all of this you know be a part of decisions and providing um, you know, recommendations and all those things, but then having to go home and, you know, you also have to put on the, the parent hat and, you know, having these, these types of conversations. So um, I can only imagine just how it just seems like a lot. So I just want to say hats off to you um, and, and to Clarence, because he was, you know, Clarence is out here dropping knowledge and gems um, as well. So 
I, I think that that's massive. And, and so parents um, and guardians or folks who just have children in their care, um, and to Clarence's point about the misinformation and the messaging, there's just so many things out there. And, you know, everybody is an expert and on, on everything, but but that's a whole, we could do a whole show on everybody thinking they're an ex expert. <laughs> that's true. Um, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> so that being said, um, and I noticed from your website, there's um, quite a few open houses that are about to take place at the schools. And, um, you know, so this is the time where teachers are meeting parents and the, you know, everybody's getting connected and all these different things. So thinking about parents as those stakeholders um, and particularly Aaron and April as parents, um, if you could speak to parents who are listening, can you, I don't even know what you want to say to them, but whatever you, if you, you have the opportunity to say something to parents right now, um, could each of you just give us a, a little, a little bit talking to the parents and guardians who are listening? Yeah. Um, for me, you know, with our kids, we have talked from the start of this pandemic to our three about collective care and what that means, right? How do we care for each other as a community? Um, how do we care for people? How do we make space for them? And so, you know, and I talked about this when I was on the show last time, our kids all stayed home last year. And, you know, one of our big motivating factors wasn't just like our fear of the virus, which is kind of how it, it got spun sometimes like, oh, well, the people who have their kids online are scared. And it wasn't fear of the virus, although I think it was definitely something to be feared, especially before we had a vaccine, right? A lot of it was part of that collective care. How do we make space in a building for kids who really need to be there? Um, and I'm not gonna determine who those kids are or how they get into the building or, or whatever. But I am saying that for my kids, I knew that we had access, privilege, we have internet, we have a house, we had space, and we had two parents who could essentially work from home. Was it easy? Absolutely not. But, you know, I really wanted them to understand that part of our job as human beings, as citizens, right, is to care for one another in this way. And so for me, as parents are thinking about masking or not masking and how it's affecting their kid or not, um, you know, we had a lot of people sort of saying, well, just let me make the decision that's best for my kid in my school. And the problem is when you have something like a pandemic, right? A decision like that can affect an entire building, right? It can infect, it can infect and affect, right? Um, many more people than oneself or one child. And so for me, that's just the takeaway, right? I, I really, really want us to think about our community and the care that we are willing to give to one another um, as we navigate through this thing, continue to navigate. We I'll want to hear from both Theron and we want to hear from Dr. Hauswald, but uh, we have about uh, a minute each and then we have to wrap. I'll just take a minute to say I agree with everything April said and would just add that the kids that I've seen have been the real superstars in all of this. And so I guess my message to parents is um, your kids are, are doing amazing jobs. Uh, I, most kids wear masks better than most adults I know. Most of them understand the idea of collective community. So if you give them the opportunity to take care of each other, they'll do it. That, so I guess I've seen that with my own kids. I've seen that with the kids she goes to school with, um, trust in them, that they, they're doing it. And Dr. Hallsworth. No, just thank you. I completely agree with uh, 
with the board members' comments on that. To the parents, we just simply say, talk to your children. Talk to them. Ask them how they're doing. Get insights and let us know what we can do to help. We've talked about collective care. We've talked about collective compassion. We've talked about collective responsibility. And it's our collective responsibility to do everything we can to make sure our students are successful in learning and in life. And I think that the pieces we have in place, the wraparound services and support we have in place, we can do that together. Um, we can only do that together if we have conversations. Um, and so we encourage the families to keep in touch with their teachers, keep in touch with their building-based principles. And of course, to let us know when they do believe that there's a policy or a practice at a systemic or community level that, that may be, um, need to be reviewed or, or there may be uh, having a negative impact on student learning or on student health. So again, the best advice we can give is to continue to have those conversations. And it was said earlier uh, about being vaccinated. So I know that's a decision that everyone makes. It's a personal decision, but I think the benefits sort of speak for themselves. Uh, we just want to thank Dr. Jeff Hauswald, uh, the newly appointed, and we will use that moniker for another 364 days, the newly appointed oh. superintendent from Monroe County Community School Corporation and the MCCSC trustee board members, April Hennessy from District 2 and Aaron Cooperman, who joined recently the MCCSC Board of Trustees in April 2021. Um, and again, uh, there were some open houses mentioned. We do encourage parents and interested people to get out to these open houses. Thanks so much, Clarence. And Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringingon at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone. Our assistant producer is William Hosea. Our consultant and WFHB News Department director is Kate Young. Program engineer is Chantal LaFontaine. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Ephium with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Gloria Howell. And I'm Clarence Boone. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.